Curse. So first of all, thanks for reaching out about this. I'm always happy to, uh, I mean, this is literally exactly what I envisioned this thing to be. And now it's a hundred plus episodes deep and yeah. never, not only have I, well, we could, we never exhaust the well of a Metallica conversation, but there are even some episodes. I just taped one with a couple of the guys from Byzantine the other day. And at like the hour 10 mark, we're wrapping up and we, we all were like, we feel like we just scratched the surface. Oh yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah. I'll, so I do like my uh, live streams most weekdays and I couldn't tell you how many times over the course of doing that, it has just evolved into me talking about Metallica for two hours and then watching like the viewer numbers just drop and drop. I'm like, <laughs> like, Oh yeah. Well, yeah. this is, this is the way he would play that. And like, <laughs> yeah that that became um it's kind of a running joke with uh different people i've interviewed over the years that i would always find a way usually inadvertently or not 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 intentionally to integrate metallica into the conversation right you know like a band would be talking about oh we're doing this and whatever i'm like yeah you know you know when metallica was working on the black album the thing with like the you know the different amps was like <laughs> like it right. always would just happen and then that became kind of a running joke and then I was like, man, I should just take these because sometimes that would kick off into a side tangent if the person I was talking to was also a huge fan. Right. Um, and I was like, man, that this is the podcast space is is perfect for these exact tangents that I love wandering into. Because I mean, Metallica is they're the they're the heavy metal Beatles. Like everybody, you I mean, even with the Beatles, you have people that hate the Beatles and love the Beatles, but it's like there are so many people that love the Beatles and there are so many people that love Metallica and will talk about them for an eternity. Indeed. And it, it's kind of a great unifier because one thing that I've noted over the years is that regardless of where, if you're into hard rock and metal, if you don't love the band, you did at some point. Yep. And maybe you abandoned ship because they made a record you didn't like or cut their hair or whatever your BS is, but you're still engaged. Like there's uh -huh. a lot of bands where people might abandon them and then they just stop paying attention. But every hard rock and metal person follows what Metallica is doing. They always know what's happening. It's always a subject of conversation. You know, when Death Magnetic came out, like people on Facebook that were hadn't listened to them since Master of Puppets were like, well, oh, the mastering on here. And it's like, Right. Well, it's, it's so odd that you have an opinion because you supposedly haven't liked this band for That's decades. When, when there's a band I don't like, I just don't listen to them. And I don't say <laughs> right. anything about them. But right. Metallica. You always hear those the opinions like, oh, the, the first four records, you haven't 
yeah they sold out and like oh did you hear that new thing i'm like well you did i can tell that you did right <laughs> yeah and it, it's so funny because i was having this conversation with a friend of mine recently where you know he was giving me the whole first five albums rap and i said you know that's a generational thing right and i was like yep. because people my age say first three or first four and then there's people even further back that were like oh ride the lightning had a ballad Right. You know, and he was like, what? No way. Like, just he's like, it's the first five. Everybody knows it's the first five. And I'm like, dude, no. Like, <laughs> most of the people I know will say first four, first three. And I was like, the, the reality is like, it has more to do with who you were when you discovered a certain band and yep. how that impacted you. And, and, uh, you know, I was looking actually just before you and I got on, I guess not just before, but, just before the call I was on, before I got on with you, um, at demographics for the first time, which I didn't, haven't really ever looked at for Speaking to Destroy, and 75% of the listenership, at least on Apple, I don't know about Spotify, or maybe it was Spotify I was looking at, I don't know, one of them, 75% of the listenership is over the age of 35, which, yeah, um, shout out to sense. the other 25%. Um, but it also was sort of like, yeah, I had the exact same reaction you did, which was like, yeah, that makes sense. That's about what I would have guessed. Um, you know, and out of that 75%, most of that is in that window of like 35 to like 50. Um, so yeah, so if you're in that group, you know, those were the records that were new at a time in your life when music, um, you know, for those of us who, who continued onward professionally with music into adulthood whether behind the scenes or in a band like yourself i think that changes our perception and our relationship to this stuff absolutely but, but yeah but for people where music was number one for them in high school and then they moved on to other things yeah sure and i hear like i hear that stuff all the time like you know playing in like hardcore bands and you know metalcore bands when i was in high school and you see somebody like years later that you went to school with and you know you're wearing like I, you know, went, went to get tattooed by a friend of mine who I went to school with and I was wearing an every time I die shirt and he goes, Oh, people still listen to that stuff. And right. Like, yeah. Just cause you stopped doesn't mean it ceased to exist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I got the, I had lunch once with this dude who, uh, I don't want to say who it is cause I don't want to sound like I'm dissing him cause I'm not, but I had lunch once with this dude who, who now has several multi-platinum singles on Spotify. He does like kind of the drake-ish like sing-songy um laptop hip-hop pop yeah. stuff um and i was talking to him i was actually it was actually meeting about potentially managing him and i'm bragging about yeah my producer client zeus you know he's he does all the rob zombie stuff he scored his last few movies he's produced his last couple records and this kid literally was like rob zombie people still like that like that's still a thing, you know, and then it, it, and it's yeah. kind of like your 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 vision goes like, you know, like all of a sudden I'm seeing the view of Earth from space. Like, oh yeah, like <laughs> this right. thing and of ours is very specific in terms of like what people know and you know. Because I mean, I get it. Like there was the point where when Rob Zombie first came out with uh, what is it, Hellbilly just deluxe, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Dragula, Living Dead Girl, all that stuff, mm -hmm. and it was all over. We still had MTV playing music regularly. It was in the rotation and then uh, he's still very popular and his movies still do very well. But I guess if you don't have it constantly on the radio, yeah, um, that, that could play a, play a part. 
and it's sort of relegated more to those of us who are like in the lifestyle or whatever you want to say yeah yeah like you like your every time i die shirt right um so the first thing i always like to ask everyone who comes on lately what was your first exposure to music in general and really falling in love with it and then at what point did you know okay this isn't just something i love this is something i need to participate in yeah um okay so i've always been around music my uh my dad was he was in a band he was in a metal band back in the 80s in uh, columbus ohio called nightmare that's a badass and, name uh, <laughs> yeah pretty cool um and he wasn't really part of my life much growing up but um at the time like i know when my mom was pregnant with me she was like eight months pregnant and they were like third or fourth row seeing iron maiden Proud. um so i've just i've kind of always grown up with it and it was probably i want to say third grade probably like 95 96 when I started to kind of pull things and have them be like, this is the music I like versus this is just what's playing at home. Mm-hmm. And a, a couple things I remember, like I remember listening to um, Smashing Pumpkins and liking that, but I remember specifically seeing the video for Until It Sleeps. Wow. And being, I, I want to say I was like nine years old when that came out and um, I mom and my stepdad had just gotten a divorce so we moved back from we lived in virginia beach we moved back to ohio and you know going through something like that as a kid you start to like kind of reach out to other things so i didn't have new i didn't have friends yet just moved and i'm like oh well i have i have a radio and we have cable i can watch tv and there's music videos on so i think metallica like i i was i didn't know who metallica was up to that point i was aware of the songs like you know, Inner Sandman, stuff like that, that was on the radio. But that was the first song I think that was new that like I had heard for the first time that wasn't just something that was playing in the background. Mm-hmm. And uh, from then on, I was like, okay, I like this. And then uh, started listening more and more. And then I think in fifth grade, my school, like we, we started middle school in fifth grade, or like we, our school district had this budget problem where they crammed fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade into the same building, and they had us. Seventh, and eighth graders went early in the morning, and then we went in the afternoon. So we were Ugh. like, I didn't get out, out of school until like seven thirty p.m. That's terrible. Yeah, but I joined band, and I was like, I want to play drums. So I started off on drums, and I was in band doing that for like four years. But I always wanted to play guitar, and I tried to be in orchestra as well. And I was like, I'll play like violin or cello or something. And I remember the orchestra director saying, you can't be in band and orchestra. You can't play drums and a stringed instrument. And I was like, oh, damn. So I stuck with uh, stuck with drums for a while. And then corn, the whole new metal thing started sort of hit me in like sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And I was like, fuck, I really want a guitar. I want this Ibanez K7. The seven string guitar. I kept seeing <laughs> of it. Of course. Like, yeah. Saw it in like the heavy metal magazines, had no concept of what it would cost because it wasn't like a gear magazine. Mm-hmm. Needless to say, I want to say it was like $1,700. It wasn't cheap. And we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I did not get that for Christmas. 
I got uh, somebody my mom worked with, gave her um, a really cheap acoustic guitar that ended up falling apart on me, but I opened it and I'm like, this is going to be the K7. And it was the guitar case. And I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. And, you know, I was, I was a dickhead kid. So I like, I said, I was thankful, but I didn't touch it for months. It just sat mm -hmm. in my room. And then I got it out and it was on my lap and I was messing around. I was like, oh, I can kind of figure this out. And from there, it was just, it kind of started growing. I wanted to play guitar more and more. Um, I traded like, I traded a BMX bike frame to a friend of mine who had a guitar that had like, it was electric, but it had five strings on it. It was missing a tuner. And then I traded that to a six string guitar to somebody else, but the electronics didn't work. Hey, five strings is still one more than Max Cavalera. Yes, there you go. <laughs> But it kind of grew from there, like middle school, like, you know, Metallica has always been like my favorite band, but I started to get into more of the, you know, at that time, like I think Jackass was getting popular. I got into CKY and some of those guys were really into like death metal. So it got me into a lot of, you know, bands like Death and Morbid Angel and all that stuff. Um, so I wasn't really into the new metal for very long because I, I heard this other stuff and it's like, Wow that guy's playing a million miles an hour on drums. Yeah. Um, and at the time, like I wasn't looking much, so much into songwriting as much as I was into just like, that's crazy. So I think from there it was got into it in like third grade, but that like started playing in middle school and probably 99 to 2000 was when it like, I was like, I got to play guitar. And I finally started doing that. Well, you're a good example of, you know, the idealized version of new metal where it was a gateway to, cooler better stuff <laughs> oh yeah absolutely you know because i even even at the time i remember and i'm not gonna like trash any bands specifically but you know obviously you have like your your big name new metal bands and then you had those other ones that were like you know third tier where you're like this isn't very good but they just some label gave them a shot because like hey this might be the next corn and yep i remember kids wearing shirts for those bands at school and i was like no I don't think so. I remember the first couple of those bands coming along and that's when you, that's when you realize like in a movement like that, like, Oh, this is, this went from this really interesting, cool, unique thing to something really lame, really fast. So this thing, how can <laughs> like, we market this and sell more Jinkos? Yeah. Or how do we, how do I, how do I take all the wrong things out of this? You know, it's, I mean, you went to, you went from somebody like Jonathan Davis, who was the quintessential weirdo in high school that was bullied. Right. To almost then, immediately somebody like Fred Durst, who like is the high school jock, you know? Yeah. And back like, then it was just like, those, like you're Jonathan Davis's half brother, sign him, <laughs> get him, get him out there right now. Totally. You've got a, you've got one blue streak in your hair and huge pants. Sounds great. Go. Um, yeah, and it definitely, you know, the the upside is that the the strong survived, you know, from that. And some of the bands who were associated, like a Deftones or a System, you know, yeah. very quickly proved grew out something of that. other. Yeah, uh, I, I think of it the same way as Stone Double Pilots, who at first were kind of categorized as this like fake grunge band, who right? Was kind of aping Pearl Jam and whatever, and very quickly they veered in a direction where it was like, no, no, they have their own trip you know that's equally valid yeah and um, i remember i remember getting into stone temple pilots like 
having all these songs where I, I knew the songs, but I didn't know who they were because they could they had so many different sounds. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd be like, yeah, who is this? Because I want to say this band is like, no, it's not Pearl Jam. Like, oh, it's Stone Temple Pilots. And that, that kept happening. I was like, OK, I need to look more into this band. And yeah, just great songwriters. Yeah, even on that first record, there's a lot of different, you know, not not to not to mention if the difference between some songs on core and a song like Big Bang Baby, right, or Sour Girl, you know, or yeah, throughout that whole catalog, yeah, amazing sound songwriters and a lot of um, a lot of Zeppelin is in that band. Yeah, you know? when you break it down, it's like a lot of a lot of Zeppelin with a uh, a less cock rocky vocal. You know, right. it's like, what if David Bowie sang for Led Zeppelin? <laughs> Here's Stone Temple Pilots. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan. So it's not lost to me when you were talking about the first guitar that you ever wished for was an Ibanez, and you are now an Ibanez-endorsed artist. That's got to be cool. I, I was for 2010 until uh, just before, shortly before the pandemic, I jumped over to a brand called Balaguer. Um, oh, and I, I love Ibanez. I love the whole team over there. They were always great. But I kind of felt like I had hit my ceiling with as far as I was going to be able to go. Um, and I liked the stuff I was getting, but more and more of the guitars that were coming out weren't like speaking to me as much as they used to. My tastes mm -hmm. were kind of changing. And I had a great opportunity with another brand, and I liked the guitars, and I liked those guys, so I gave it a shot, and I've been pretty happy. I mean, just today they announced that Kirk Hammett jumped over to Gibson. Yeah, I I looked at his page and I he said I think he's still with ESP but also now officially with Gibson. Oh wow. I, I guess if you I guess if you're in Metallica you can do that. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> so I'm sure they're going to I imagine they're probably going to release like a limited edition greeny replica for $30,000 and uh do some epiphones but then also have you know his his ESP like mirages like the Kirk yeah, K I was gonna, I was gonna say what's 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 the Gibson version of an LTD? <laughs> Epiphone. Yeah, I guess it would um, be Epiphone. Huh? Yeah, and I I think that what will work there is that uh, they're different guitars. So I know there's been this kind of like I've kn I've known guys that have played Fender, like endorse Fender, and Fender's like, yeah, I mean, if you want to play Les Paul, you can. Like they just kind of have this non-compete thing because they understand like playing a Les Paul isn't going to make you not want to play a Stratocaster. Mm -hmm. And I assume it might, I mean, it's Kirk Hammett. So he can, again, he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, Gibson is like, yeah, people buying the KH2 with the horror movie graphics on it. That's not going to stop us from selling Les Pauls and vice versa. Yeah. It, it's interesting because, you know, with few exceptions, I think there is no guitar player linked with a shape and style of guitar as much as James Hetfield is linked to the Gibson Explorer. And then it's oh, yeah. crazy to, to think about how, you know, Hetfield's been with ESP, oh, <laughs> not yeah. Gibson all and, this time. And for the longest time when he had those, the old, I want to say they called them the EXP, the, their old Explorer shape, mm -hmm. um, which I, they got sued for. Um, so they they got a cease and desist probably. I don't think they actually got sued, but yeah. So they stopped making them. They they become super expensive on the the used market. But Hatfield loves the Explorer. Yeah, I mean it's his. You know, it's like Slash in the top hat. <laughs> yeah, and I just, that Explorer shape. I just found out recently. Um, 
Ken Lawrence, who builds a lot of James's, like his really custom, like the, uh, the Explorer he's got that has like the wood from the garage that they used to ride mm-hmm. in. He, his shop is like 40 minutes north of here. And I'm like, hmm. Be, being somebody that, like I've, I've been working on guitars for years and years. So I'm like, that's really intriguing to me. And I'm like, you've made guitars for my, my hero. Yeah. Love so, to check that out someday. That's a nice segue into the way that this band has shaped your playing, you know, something that comes up a lot on the podcast is the right hand of Hetfield and yeah. that just insane, precise, perfect rhythm crunch. Um, yeah, even when I, when I had Dino from fear factory on a little while back, he was even breaking down like specifics of the way he palm mutes. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I think that, I want to say that Dino and I play very similarly because we probably both are just ripping off Hetfield when it comes to rhythm playing. Yeah. Um, do you remember, you know, you mentioned the Until It Sleeps video. Do you remember the first record you got and, and what, what really grabbed you and what some of the first songs were you started to figure out? Um, I remember having Ride the Lightning because ba- back then, like I would just hear songs on the radio. Like I'd, was so young that I wasn't going to the record store on my own. Um, but I remember around the time, especially when I was actually like getting the drums, that's when I would go to, I would save my lunch money and I would go to a store called media play. <laughs> and, I remember uh, media play. <laughs> yeah. All, Mid, Midwest classics. Yeah. Rest in peace. Um, I would go and I would use my, I would, and I would buy these, old Metallica records there's new stuff coming out but I'm like okay well now the next one I have to get is this because they'd have all of them um I want to say I I bought Ride the Lightning first and was trying to you know tried to play along as best as I could and this is this kind of helps to shape me as a guitar player where every tab I would try to find online to learn these songs was always wrong. I could That's tell what it was I keep wrong. hearing. Yeah. I just heard and that from somebody else too, that the, that the books, the tab books were even, wrong yeah, back in the day. Even too. the books were way, way wrong. And they would just, yeah. it was just a licensed product. And somebody was like, yeah, I get this sounds kind of right. <laughs> I mean, it's not like Kirk and James are taking time out of their day to look over a tab book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I was read, you know, looking that stuff up on AOL and I'm like, this is real. this sounds wrong. Um, and then, of course, Ride the Lightning is slightly below standard tuning. So trying to t- play along with it, it's like always going to sound kind of off unless you. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the dime bag thing where everything was t- tuned to like 432 instead of 440. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was buying. I bought that. I remember bu- I bought Master of Puppets probably five or six different times just from wearing it out. Um. But I got very much stuck for a good chunk of time on like the whole the first four thing because that's what I would see online. I'm like, oh yeah, the first four records. Even though I liked the other stuff, but I started like, oh, they cut their hair. Just being a dumb kid, and that's like what you're hearing. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's also my opinion. Um, which has since changed, but so I had had those, and I just kind of wore them out. I I will say I never been a huge fan of kill them all i like it but i don't think they were quite metallica yet they were kind of coming into it 
And then I think Ride the Lightning was like much closer to what they were going to become. And then Master Puppets is just like, here we are. I would agree with that. I mean, I, I often say that if if aliens show up and, and ask what is Metallica, that Master of Puppets is the song that you play them. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, and that's a great point about Kill Em All, especially when you think about how Kill Em All was created, how those songs are really a hodgepodge of, you know, maybe some riffs that James brought in from Leather Charm. And, and then there were a couple of songs like Jump in the Fire that Mustaine brought in as complete songs from his band Panic. Yeah. Uh, and then you have, you know, like what mechanics and yeah. And Me- mechanics was another one that was like a complete song. And, and uh, you know, they were obviously those first few shows they played, they played more diamond head songs than Metallica songs. Right. So I think it was kind of like they, they got enough songs to have a demo and then, then enough songs to have an album. And they made the album as many bands do for that first album, that whole joke about, you know, you have all the time in the world to write your first one. Yeah. Six months to do the follow-up. Uh, but yeah, I would agree with you. I, I think that there are definitely some seeds there. Um, I've often said if the band had split up after Kill Em All, it would still be this very cool cult classic weird album yeah. of the 80s. Uh, but yeah, it, it is in many ways songwriting sonically, lyrically a bit separated from the rest of the catalog. Yeah, and that's it's even like you watch videos of them playing some of the stuff later live like well i want to say it was uh the the seattle 89 video when they're playing uh four horsemen like just having like jason's backup vocals yeah. everything it makes it sound way more like metallica and mm-hmm. less like the the band that they were at the time yeah uh jason's backups come up on the podcast a lot because with all all respect and love to Robert Trujillo, who is a uh, incredible, iconic musician and a great member of Metallica. I really miss those Newstead backups. Yeah, they're great. It's unstoppable. And when he sang lead, which he often did live, just, you know, often on those old songs. Yeah, I mean, he, I, I, I love Rob. I love every bass player that they've had. Um, but man, Jason... Like, I wish he would have been able to be in the band after the whole St. Anger therapy session thing. Because I think that could have worked out a lot of those problems that were there. Um, But unfortunately, you know, that's not the way it went. And thankfully, they did get Rob. He's great. Yeah. And apparently, you know, as Jason said, and over the years, he has physical problems that have, you know, the level of intensity that he brought every night. Uh, right couldn't bring it anymore I, I saw an interview with Hetfield where he met, he pointed out that three of out of four big four singers have had neck surgery <laughs> it's like I believe it you know him him and him and Tom Maria and uh and Dave Mustaine have all had uh problems with their necks over the years I remember going to going to a chiropractor at one point and they showed me my x-ray and they're like you have most patients that come in that have spines in the shape of yours are in their late sixties. And I was like, Oh, cool. <laughs> Maybe I should stop sleeping in a van. You're like, thanks hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, so as far as getting in bands and things like that and playing with other people, how did that come about? What was your, your origin story of um, bands okay. and all that? So 
like I said, I started off on drums and I had like some friends we would kind of jam and I would play drums and, you know, our tour manager now, like he was in my first band with me. We've been best friends since probably freshman in high school. And, uh, we would always, I was always just kind of jamming with people, always trying to find a band. And usually there's like a shortage of drummers, but at the time, like everybody had a drummer and I was just like, just there. Yeah. And drummers guitar- usually are the shortage too. scarcity. Yeah. Yeah. It was weird. And, uh, guitar at that point, I considered that more of like my hobby. Like, Oh yeah, I play, I have, I just have fun playing guitar, but I'm like, I want to be a drummer. I'm going to be a studio drummer. I'm going to be in a band. Like I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be a drummer. And a buddy of mine, Rob came over and jammed with me and some friends and he, he played guitar. I was playing drums and we were trying to, we were trying to write like a, we we're starting like a thrash band. And I was like, we're going to call the band hell to pay like number two. <laughs> it's going to be real stupid. And, uh, he was like playing stuff and I, and I was like, I would grab his guitar and be like, try to play it like this. And, uh, like the next day at school, like I overheard him talking shit about me kind of, <laughs> but he was like, he was just like, he's like, he's okay at drums. I don't know why the fuck he plays drums though. He should play guitar. He's way better at guitar. That's and amazing. I was like, I was just like, Oh, and then I, I played guitar <laughs> like drums <laughs> thanks, kind of t- took the back seat. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so after that, um, my friends had a band and they broke up and then they started, basically they didn't want to fire their singer. So they just broke up and then started a new band without him. Mm -hmm. Um, and the guy that was playing bass was going to sing. So I needed a bass player and I was like, okay, well, I have a bass too. I'll play bass. We did that for a while. And then the guitar player, the guy that was. It played a bit. He he started playing guitar and singing, and then we got tired of him, and we kicked him out of the band. And I moved to guitar, and we got a singer. And that's that was we were called 1931. It was like metalcore, very much, um, like Darkest Hour, Dead to Fall, all at the gates inspired stuff. I was gonna say all the uh, new wave of American metalcore. Yes. Yeah. And. Uh, it was that, but then it also had, you know, inspiration from other like Ohio stuff. Like, you know, Integrity is one of my favorite bands. And this j- sits on my desk at all times, which is the uh, Integrity demo. Harder They Fall. Incredible. 1989 or 90. And I still have the note that DeWid wrote that was inside the cassette. Yeah, and you know, Integrity was a very important band for the Acacia Strain. And I remember at uh, we were on Warp Tour. I had uh, like a custom set of pickups made for one of my guitars that had um, one of them said "Holy Terror" and the other one said it was just a uh, like Charles Manson's eyes. <laughs> and then I got like a friend request from Dwid on Facebook, yeah. and I was like, "Yeah, excuse me." <laughs> and now we're now we're friends. I talk to him all the time. That's amazing. He claims, and he may be correct. I don't know. I don't know that there's any way to to really verify it. Um, he claims that I invented the term metalcore. That it was in some article that I wrote in somewhere in the '90s about integrity, 
Um, it's very possible. It is very possible. And obviously that, that term has now taken on a lot of different meanings. Yes. Um, but there's stuff that you, you know, there's stuff that I would describe as crossover, which I think is distinctly different, you know? Yeah. DRI, Chrome Suckers, even Age of Quarrel. I do feel like metal, you know, I think Judge was metallic hardcore, you know, but that, but I, that first Integrity album is metalcore. Like that's a, like it was a new genre being birthed, which, um, yes, it's a lot of the stuff that's been called metalcore over the last 10 years, I wouldn't associate with that. But at the same right. time, like, that's how it goes, you know. There's there's always somebody shaking their fist. At... Definitions change, and you don't, you know, you don't really have any control over it. it. Just happens. Yeah, he hates it. By the way, that was not a compliment when he told me I invented it. <laughs> <laughs> he absolutely hates being called that. But that's the other thing too is you know every band tends to hate the genre classification that they're stuck with. I think there were even points in the '90s where Lars complained about being a metal band. You know, I think right just like a every band. Part of every band wants to just be a band yes we got the same thing like where people were like oh yeah you know back in the day Vince did some interview where you know he was very tongue-in-cheek just like don't call us deathcore and because it's like we're just a, we're just a heavy band we can do all kinds of stuff and a lot of the bands that we were getting kind of pigeonholed with they did this one thing where it's just like here's a breakdown here's a bunch of blast beats and it's it was it was very like one dimensional and it's like yeah. no we don't we don't want to be like that that's not what we sound like there's bands that have been influenced by us that sound like that but that's not what we sound like and, but it's it's a losing battle and you you just kind of yeah just go with it when people are like oh oh you're in a band yeah what what kind of music do you play like, oh, like hard rock <laughs> heavy <Right>. metal <laughs> yeah depending and and that's more if you're like talking to civilians right yeah grandparents um, friends yeah, which, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Dashboard Confessional hated to be called emo. You know, and it's like, dude, you're the king of emo. Yeah. Right. Uh, AFI to this day, if you, if you say the, the word, the words goth punk to them, they just, they cringe. Hardcore band. You know? Yeah, they're a hardcore band. Yeah, it's, <laughs> Dashboard Confessional is a rock band. On and on and on it goes. But yeah, it's kind of inescapable. When, where was the first time you saw Metallica live? I've only, unfortunately, had the chance to see them live once, and it was on the, what tour was that? It was the, uh, I saw them in 2008. Um, that would have been Death Magnetic? Yeah. The Yeah, that was the Death Magnetic tour. Um Saw them in Columbus at the Schottenstein Center with Down and I believe the Sword, and uh, it was great. I it's funny. My mom worked for OSU and she had a parking pass, so I didn't have to pay for parking, but I had to park really far away. <laughs> and on the walk there, I somehow lost my ticket. Oof! It just fell out of my my hoodie pocket or something, and I got to the stadium, like the arena, and I was like, "Oh shit." And so I went back and I'm like looking on the ground everywhere. And thankfully, because I parked so far away, nobody was walking that direction. So I found it. <laughs> um, got back. And also when I bought the ticket, the guy at ticket, because I went and bought it in person at Ticketmaster. And the guy showed me like the seating chart of like, oh, the stage will be here at the end of the arena. So I got um, upper level seats that were close to that, but they were playing in the round. 
So I was like, son of a bitch. I could have been much closer. Um, but it was good. And then they started playing. They were playing newer stuff. And like I went to the bathroom. And that was when everyone went to the bathroom. Because they, I mean, they play for a long time. Yeah, Great. Sure. Uh, but yeah, they, they good production. Lots of, you know, it's, it's cool being in an arena full of people. Everyone going, die, die, <laughs> die. You're like, yeah. I love this, uh, but every chance, like before or after, um, either like I was out of town or I like just been on tour and it's like, oh shit, they're playing. Like they played when I still lived in Columbus. I think I was on tour and they played, um, I think it was still rock on the range and not mm-hmm. Sonic temple, but they, they headlined one of those and like, uh, our tour manager, he was working the show and like he got my mom really close. I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> she loves Metallica too. Um, but I'm just like every every time there's like an opportunity, like I I miss it. And it's like hopefully one day I get to play one of these like festivals that all my friends are playing. We're like, exactly. I just want to be like just the one time. Just let me say like, hey, I played with Metallica. Cool. <laughs> yeah. The, I love the mother-son Metallica connection. What, what's that like? It's pretty cool um, because when you're growing up, like you're riding in the car with your parents or something like that, they've got what they want to listen to. And then you're like, you know, the, the generation before iPods and stuff, like you had a, you know, you have your CD player, which had batteries that you would, they would die. So you'd just be like, can I play my CD? <laughs> and usually your mom like i remember at one point putting in um nothing by Meshuga, and i think i got through like halfway through the first song my mom was like i don't know what this is but we're not doing this <laughs> but i could put on metallica whenever i wanted to um so we would do that a lot um that was pretty great she was i mean one of the main reasons i'm i think i'm successful is because i had I was able to, like, we always practice at my house. I had drums there, guitars. I was always encouraged to do that. Yeah. I think my mom understood, which I didn't understand as a young, you know, younger guy, like having a creative outlet and having something like that. She was like, I would rather have you there playing guitar than going out with your dumb out, ass friends, like, yeah. getting in trouble. Yeah. I know where you're at and you're, and thankfully, hey, it's paid off. My band is somewhat successful. So thanks, mom. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I saw just today, actually, before we talked, that uh, <laughs> you got you, you got to tell me about Diaper Reaper. Oh my God! Okay, yeah. So I've been I've been streaming for a while, and usually I'm just playing games, but I've been wanting to stream like me writing music for the longest time, and I could never get the the tech to work right i could never get my recording program to work with the streaming software and it was just kind of always a headache Mm -hmm. um and then i was talking to anthony from the band god's hate and he i don't i don't know what it was that he said that i was like oh let me click this and it's like it worked and i was like oh my god so yesterday i was just kind of like jamming and today i was like okay i'm gonna stream i'm gonna write a song and I'm like, because I'm doing this podcast today, what what better than to <laughs> let's see if I can write a Metallica style song. Yeah. And then I let everybody in the chat, like, you guys are gonna write the lyrics. I'm just gonna do everything in one shot. Um so everything was off the top of my head. And 
it it's not bad i'm surprised at how good it is but everyone all of course all the lyrics that people came up with were about like poopy diapers and whatever so it's me doing a cheap dollar store james hatfield imitation talking about farts and stuff i'm gonna have to uh, grab that and tack that on to the end of this episode it could be fun yeah uh hopefully i'll be doing more stuff like that because it's a fun like songwriting exercise too just to like because if you if you try to limit yourself to just like i just write acacia strain sounds like this so i need to write like this if i don't Mm -hmm. branch out and do other things you get very stuck and you write the same kind of stuff over and over and then then you blame everybody else when your band is starts doing worse and worse (laughs) because you put out the same record six times and people are tired of it so yeah i was like all right let's what would what would metallica do what would how would james play this how would how would Cliff have played this part? Um, although I played it like a pick, like Jason, with a pick, like Jason. And uh, then for leads, because like Kirk's leads are very different from what I would do, but I'm in my head, I'm like, okay, well, he would just bend the shit out of this really fast. And so it's, it's kind of pedal. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I had that going. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was a fun exercise. We had a good time just writing a stupid song. And I was like, what should I call it? And I I don't remember who it was like this diaper reaper. And I was like, okay. <laughs> it's a nice uh gosh, what's there's a word for that when you make a word by combining two words? Uh portmanteau. Yes. I'm quite impressed. Thank you. Sometimes I, on the I know words. Tongue. Sometimes I know things. <laughs> uh it sounds like a fine wine, a portmanteau. <laughs> um yeah, when I had Scott from the band Zeo wrote a theme for Speak and Destroy that plays on every episode now. Oh, very cool. And it was a similar thing where he was just like, yeah, I'm going to write a song in the style of Metallica. And I've had people ask me, Metallica fans, what Metallica song that is. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, this... you must have done a great job if people are asking me, like, what's that weird, obscure Metallica demo at the beginning of your show? Oh, yeah, the the song I did say, it, the first part of it sounds very much like uh, Of Wolf and Man. So then I'm like, I already have to get faster because if I stay here, I'm just going <laughs> to rip that whole song off. So I had to speed it up and then we go back to it. But it's, I think it worked pretty well. Um, um, and then... It's like to hear it. The, the faster stuff too you gotta you have to make sure you're doing the drums right because if you do the drums too fast it just sounds like terror <laughs> um yeah it was it was fun it was i'm gonna i'm definitely gonna do that more often not necessarily doing metallica every time but um i think that's probably the easiest for me to just be like oh well hetfield would do this like when I'm, whenever i'm learning metallica songs that i don't already know I'm playing something I'm like okay well I know what he's done in these other songs and a lot of his playing he does a lot of similar things so there's certain shapes and certain things you're like no he wouldn't do that <laughs> right go, yep this sounds right that's and he yeah. would probably do that that's awesome yeah it, and it makes you think of that whole like genre on YouTube that's like you know Wham's last Christmas in the style of typo negative like you know right. like this, this stuff that people are doing um it's like its own little separate culture uh it's a fun exercise definitely and helps i think it helps your overall songwriting when you can you know not 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 necessarily just what your influences are but how to pull from them and how to do something with them when you are putting on your guitar and you're warming up 
if Metallica riffs are coming out of your hands, what are what are they usually? What are the most common ones? Um, if I'm just picking up my guitar, probably like the the verse riff from uh, Creeping Death. That one I play a lot. Um, that one I'm teaching guitar to. I because I, it's so simple. I'll I'll have my students play that one if they're wanting to learn like metal riffs. I'm like, oh, I don't really yeah. know, and I'm like, try this because it sounds like a lot more than it really is. And they'll be <laughs> like, damn, I'm pretty good at guitar. Um, right. <laughs> that um, Dyer's Eve is a fun one if you if you want something that's like fast and shows off pretty much every member of the band at their best yeah Absolutely. musically um but it's it's weird too like i justice used to be my 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 list of like where their records fall changes probably daily whatever i'm listening to that day but justice used to have a solid number one spot and it has definitely fallen over the years and i think that it's um it's the one I probably know the most riffs from, mm-hmm. but it's the one that has the most riffs. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Listening to yeah. it, like, you know, when I'm driving, I, I listen to a lot of the same stuff over and over, and Metallica gets a lot of that playtime when I'm driving on tour. And I used to listen to that every day on the way to, like, the way to school and the way from school. Like, on the bus, I would be able to get through the whole record. Um, and so I would do that. And being older, I'm like, get to the end of the song <laughs> like i want to say i think five and a half minutes something like that is or 540 is like the shortest song yeah. on that record and i think that they kind of realized that and that the black album those strong those songs are short and to the point but they are good and a lot of people you have that whole like oh the black album they sold out and it's like no that record has fucking riffs that has some of their hardest riffs yeah you can't you can't say metallica isn't heavy on the black album yeah anyone who says that is just sad but true and say that with a straight face yeah that's the heaviest song ever written and i i you know a lot of that credit i think goes to bob rock and him understanding what lars's strengths were and his weaknesses and saying okay yeah just hang back and just you know pound the drums and he did and it just it works so well and you know going from there I think he, I I, I want to, you know, this is just speculation, but I would assume that after the Black Album, they they're, they're like, there's no way that we're going to write something heavier than that. Right. And so we have to write something different. And you, uh, the, I think for a lot of people, even the people that are like, they, they accept the Black Album, for a lot of people, um, Load and Reload was like, they're like, no, but those, those records are great. There's, there's a lot of songs. But there's definitely like some really great songs in there. Like, again, you can't listen to Bleeding Me and tell me that that's not a good song. And also say like, oh, this is commercial shit. And like that song is like, what was it, like seven and a half minutes long? I was going to say the Outlaw Tour was so long that didn't the whole album wouldn't fit on the CD. Right. The record, <laughs> they had to do the unencumbered by manufacturing version down the road. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... I think there's a really natural way that the Black Album is a response or reaction to Injustice for All. Like, yeah, you, know, you pull the rubber band all the way back and let it go. You know, where it was like coming from as many riffs as we can cram into 10 minutes is a song on Justice. Right. 
to then opening the Black Album with Inner Sandman, which is essentially one riff all the way through. Yeah, that Kirk wrote in a hotel room in the middle of the night. Yeah, uh, and Lars arranged. You know, it, it shows everyone's strengths in a totally different way. Uh, and then you, uh, and yeah, and you think about how rhythmic that is and the bass in that song. And yeah, and it's and, that's uh, another. I, I, you know, I would love to. Obviously, it's you know, it'll never happen, but I would love to hear them take all of the Justice riffs. And like have have been able to record that record with Bob Rock because he would have cut everything down and you would have had something like really different but really fucking good. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I, I you, it comes up a lot in conversation the idea of of editing Saint Anger, but yeah, I've never thought about that in terms of justice. I, I like, like Saint Anger. What's that? I I like Saint Anger. The Tom, the other guitar player in my band, he would call me a Metallica apologist. I've, I've, been, I've been called the same. <laughs> I legitimately enjoy every record that they've done. I, you know, I've watched some kind of monster several times, but I watched it yesterday, and I think a lot of people didn't understand what they were doing. But that's the thing that people need to understand about Metallica is they're the bravest band in the world. Absolutely, nobody else would have done that. They would have recorded that and been like, no, 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 no. But I think. I think that Metallica also probably knew like this isn't going to be received very well, but this is what we needed to get out because this is us reinventing ourselves and going back to what was it like being kids and writing this music? How, how do, how do we reignite this fire? Because the last song that came out before they recorded St. Anger, which I think was, uh, I disappear. Mm -hmm. That's my least favorite Metallica song. Like song, like guitar wise and stuff, it's it just it sounds really lazy to me, and I think that they probably knew that too, and they're just like, yeah. Um, that's the song I, that started the Napster War too. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that that whole thing. Lars was right, kind of. I don't think that you know going after individual users, whatever. But yeah, the industry has changed greatly. Yeah, I think um, he was right, and I think going after individual users was, uh, you know, he got painted into this corner. Because Napster kept saying, we can't do anything about it. It's people putting it up there. We're just the right. platform. If you tell us who's putting it up there, maybe we could take it down. And so right. that was them. Their sort of smart ass retort was like, okay, here's a list of everyone. Right. I think maybe Even not it thinking it all the way through. But yeah, I, I've said this on the podcast before, but if you, there's a Charlie Rose episode from that era with Lars and Chuck D and Chuck D who's an icon and legend and, and somebody who, who's art i love and appreciate if you watch that now and through the lens of of 20 years on yeah everything lars says is going to happen and all the points he makes are all correct and all came true and everything chuck d says was way off you know he talked about how napster and downloading were gonna we were gonna have more record labels and we were gonna have mm. more of this and it's a revolution no. and and lars was making all the points where he's like this isn't a revolution. This isn't about like the common man and, and artists because there's still money to be made. He's like, people yes. are investing millions of dollars into Napster. They expect a return on that investment. There's still going to be fat cats. It's just going to be different fat cats. Yeah. We're going to, artists are going to get a smaller cut. Yeah. And then when you and... see like Kim.com's <laughs> compound, you go, oh yeah, that's where did that money from free come from? Right. Because you, know? you know, you look back and you're like, you look at how massive bands were in the nineties, how, you know, and granted a lot of that was 
people were buying more CDs than ever because more people were getting CD players and a lot of people were up, you know, boomers and stuff were like, oh, I'm going to buy my Elvis CDs on mm-hmm. this. And so that eventually is, is going to start to decline. But the Napster and everything kind of sped that along. And then everybody made deals with the streaming brand, streaming companies and all this stuff, all those services. And now we're left with our what point zero zero three cents a stream. And I'm like, if, if our band existed 25 years ago and we were the size we are now, then we would have an incredible amount of money for like a heavy band. Absolutely. Um, and, and I'm just like, and, that's and by not the same, complaining. And by the same turn, yeah, with the streaming services, I, I often point out like, hey, the thing about the streaming services coming along and legitimizing it and making it all accessible and convenient for us um, and paying out you know, these meager fractions, the alternative was free. Yeah. The alternative was up to that. It was like, well, everyone's just stealing it. (laughs) So at least it was free. So it's, it's better than it's better than nothing. And it does give people an easy way to hear something, but in to counterpoint, even what I said, um, I think a lot of bands aren't being creative enough when it comes to releasing their music. People, you can't just be like, here's the CD here's the record. Like you have to have all these, you know, vinyl variants for collectors. What we did with our last record where we put out five, seven inches with two songs Mm -hmm. each and then combined them all into one record and added more songs to that. Um, Just things to keep people engaged and have, Oh yeah. Cause buying a record used to be an experience. You go to the record store. You don't do that anymore. You just Mm pre-order online. It's not, you have to have that some, some sort of experience. And a lot of artists aren't doing that. They're just putting out a single or there's, here's the record. And, you know, obviously this is a, this is a podcast about Metallica and that's, that's something I learned from Metallica. Like you look at live shit, binge and purge, you have that whole box set that's in like this road case looking thing. It makes you want to make cool shit. Mm-hmm. You don't want to just make a CD or just make a, a, a record. And these collector's boxes, ever since they got the masters back and they've been doing these deluxe edition, you know, yeah. every album, like, it, I mean, and we knew the black album was going to be a big deal because the album's a big deal. Oh yeah. And then they still surprise us yet again, where it's like, Hey, we're, you know, the world's most famous cover band. And here's 50, what is it? 53, 54 artists covering us. It's right. Genius. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, it's just they, they, another genius idea. They can do whatever they want and they just, there's times people see stuff as a misstep and it's like, no, like most people hated Lulu and they don't realize this isn't, it's not a Metallica record it is a Lou Reed record with Metallica as the backing band. And that is very much as if, if James Hetfield came to me and said, Hey, I want to do a solo record. Will you guys play all the music in the background? I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, that would be a fun thing to do. And you know that Lou Reed is somebody that was a hero to them, and they're like, "Yeah, we can, we can do that. We will do that, and we'll release it. It'll be cool." And for what it is, it's cool. You have to look at it through that lens, though, of like it's a Lou Reed record with Metallica as the backing band. Context is key for sure, and the fact that they've built themselves into a place and built up a, a not only a trust with their audience, but also. You know, they, they're constantly challenging us with their art, uh, challenging our, our notions about what the thing is or what they can do or 
what it means. And I think that that's important. I think all, I think art should be challenging and our art should have a point of view, not yeah. necessarily challenging for its own sake, but uh, it, it's got to be fluid and, and moving forward in some way. And that's always the trick with bands. And I'm sure, you know, you're feeling some of this with Acacia Strain being an established act and having multiple releases out at this point that you get you get to the stage where every record's got to have some familiarity and some commonalities that link it to the rest of the catalog and it still yeah. sounds like that band versus just a whole new band or a side project but by the same turn you have to take it forward and that balance and that push and pull and and I'm sure you're at the point where a lot of bands inevitably get where every time a record comes out there's some contingent of the fan base that says it's not as good as the old stuff right and but, the, but the funny thing is you stick around long enough is you see that that record that everyone said wasn't as good as the old stuff, two records later, that one's now the old stuff. Yeah. And now people are saying the new thing's not as good as that thing two records ago. And it's like, yeah, but. And that's the thing. Like when people say that stuff, I'm just like, okay, small brain. Um, it's like, oh, I wish I, I missed this record. I'm like, that record still exists. You can yes, still that's the to thing it. too. <laughs> and we could we could write a record that sounds like essentially part two of that, but you're not going to be 16 years old anymore listening to it on your way to school or at a party or something like that and have that same connection with it. Yeah. Like you can't recreate that connection that you exactly. have. That's always going to be your favorite record. The one that got you into whatever band and no matter what a band does, no matter how close they get to that sound, it's not going to have the same connection because you didn't hear it at the same point in your life. And people Absolutely. don't understand that. And they're just like, Oh, I missed that. I missed that record. Oh. And and so often they can't see it, it like outside of themselves. Yeah, like they're they can see it with other things, but when they're but when they're in a band themselves or they're a filmmaker themselves, uh, all of a sudden it becomes relative. Uh, yeah, it, it's an interesting phenomenon for sure. I always talk about that time, place, and circumstance, and who were you and where were you when you discovered a certain thing. Yeah, like you know, I. I still remember the first time I was able to go and buy a Metallica record the day it came out was St. Anger. And I went to a place called CD Warehouse. <laughs> and, I remember that place too. <laughs> yep. The day that St. Anger came out, I bought that record used. Wow. Somebody, the day it came out. Yeah. Because somebody wow. bought it, put it in their car and went, what the fuck is this? And wow. returned it. And that's gnarly. at the time <laughs> I was like, I was so excited. Cause I'm just like, this is a band I love. This is the first time I get to buy something like new. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, so I, I tried to the first week or so of having it. I kept like, I kept trying to justify it to my friends and be like, no, it's good. Like I like it. And then I like, didn't really like it. And years later, like, kind of once you can listen to it and understand what it is which is the them rebirthing themselves and letting you hear that whole therapeutic journey versus just being like here's a record it makes more sense and you can appreciate it like i like that it is raw there are good riffs on it um and it's it's very they're very vulnerable most bands aren't going to give you that and that's something i say about um like Kirk Hammett specifically, I think is one of the bravest guitar players who has ever lived. And that's why he's so good. Um, everybody has seen 
the the Robin Kirk doodles they do live. And there's times where you're like, you're like, what the fuck are they doing? But then you think Kirk Hammett knows he's not going to play this perfectly and he doesn't give a shit. He's saying, hey, we're having fun and you're here with us. We're just going to have fun while James and Lars rest for a bit because that's what we do. We're friends. You know, Rob and I are good pals and we're going to play this song and have a little bit of fun. Most people don't do that because they have this very serious like, this is our band and this is our image and this is, you know, we have to all wear black on stage and we have to do this. And Kirk Hammett's like, yeah, we're going to go play Take On Me by AHA. We're going to play When Doves Cry. Yeah. <laughs> the song that famously did not have bass in it at all. <laughs> it's, it's fun. It's, that's the thing is it's fun. And there was a point I even asked, um, we were playing in it was it was actually right before the 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 whole pandemic thing we were in south carolina and doc was in town because uh the wedding band was going to play okay yeah that's and, south carolina thing they did yeah and that was like the day after we were there and i'm like son of a bitch once <laughs> again i miss it but doc came out to the show and we were just talking and i'm just like i like you know i want to just be like so what's it like being in a band with two of two people from the greatest band to ever exist? <laughs> right. uh, but I'm just like, so what's up with these, the, these doodles? <laughs> and he said the same thing. And he's like, it's like, they're just brave, man. It's just, yeah, they're having fun. And at, there's a point where we all know at this point, like how from like stuff new set has said where he's, made just off their first tour he made enough to live for the rest of his life because of like smart investments and blah 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 they don't need metallica could retire and never have to do anything again but they do it because they want to they don't need to at this point so oh yeah they're gonna start this cover band sure that'll be fun uh james wants to build furniture sure he can they don't have to play festivals anymore they don't have to do anything but they do it because they love doing it and without saying anger, you don't have that Metallica would have fallen apart. Yeah. It's a very interesting, you know, I tend to think of that album at this point as a soundtrack to that documentary. Yeah. You know, like music, music from the film. Uh, and, and in that regard, it, it has a, a special place. And there are times where I've seen them live and they play, you know, frantic, like there's some songs all within my hands, acoustic, that was yeah. the first time I really connected to that song is, is when they did it at one of the bridge school benefits. And like, yeah, I remember hearing, I think, cause I, did they do, did they do that uh, on SNM two also? Yes. I heard that and I didn't realize that it was like, Oh, this is on St. Anger. And I was like, it's like, Oh yeah. Well, I like this song. Yeah. Hearing it with that, it makes it, it takes away that kind of rawness and everything. And it's just, it's good. Yeah. I'll, another really cool thing that they did at SNM two is when they did unforgiven three, with just Hetfield and the orchestra. Yeah, that's awesome. That was super cool. And and again, yeah, speaking of vulnerable, that's as vulnerable as it gets. Just you and the orchestra, <laughs> no yeah. guitar, no band. It's pretty powerful. Absolutely. I don't know if you're if you're hearing the weed eater right right outside my window. Just barely. <laughs> they're they're supposed to be here on Fridays, not Thursdays. Um, 
so yeah, you mentioned your ranking and that it changes. Mine changes probably once a year, every six yeah. months or something like that. Um, Ride the Lightning and Master Puppets often take each other's place, swapping back and forth for number one and number two. Um, I've had load very high yeah. to where people call me an apologist or a uh, whatever we said before troll was in the lexicon. People would say I'm I'm a contrarian that I'm being contrarian. Yeah. You know? Or when I would or when I would say that uh, uh you know when I when I say that I like Revenge of the Sith more than I like any of the sequel trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> People get really upset. Uh, and getting back to the thing you were saying, too, uh, George Lucas ruined my childhood. It's like, no, no, your childhood still yeah. happened. Yeah, it's still there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I don't like The Rise of Skywalker, but I don't have to watch it. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> no that's the thing making, is, like, it wasn't necessarily no making me watch it. Yeah. I remember when they did the uh, the newer Ghostbusters movie and all these people were like complaining about it. I'm like, yeah. you don't have to watch it. You oh, do not have it does, to see it's it. not the original cast. It's not made for yeah. you. And I saw it. I didn't. And it's fine. I didn't love it. I thought it was fine. And it hasn't changed my relationship to that first movie at all. Yeah, and guess what? Because those movies are still there because you can watch yeah. them. And guess what? The second one's not that good. <laughs> right. We give, it a, we give it a pass because it's the same cast and we were, you know, tiny. Right, but it, that, came it was out. very much that point in time where they're like, we got to make a sequel. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah, I love that. I mean, it's like you said, I mean, it gets attributed to Alan Moore and I think. Truman Capote or somebody. I don't think anyone actually knows who originated it, but it's that thing, yeah, where they're like, they the, they made this movie, it ruined your book. It's like, no, my book's right there on the shelf. Right. Right where it was, you know. This remake, you know, A Nightmare on Elm Street's my favorite horror film of all time. I haven't even seen the Jackie Earl Haley remake. I saw, I saw that in the theater when I was in Oceano and I wanted to get up and leave because I thought, in my head, I was like, okay, well, they're not going to have Robert England. It's going to be, they're going to try to make it like really scary. And then he like cracked a joke and I was like, son of a bitch. <laughs> like, lost interest immediately. But yeah. Nightmare's still there. I can still go back and it's watch It's still nightmare. there. I want, and, and I, I want a scary it. nightmare. I can watch new Nightmare. And by the, and by, right. And by the time it got to uh, Freddy's dead, you know, Robert England, like he said, it you know, Freddie had become like Wiley Coyote by that. Point. Right. And that's fun for what it is. You yeah. Know? He's like on a broomstick flying around as the Wicked Witch. Like, <laughs> it's fun. The first movie's scary. By the time it gets there, it's just fun. So you're ranking now at the present time. Where where do you, where do you okay. put them? I actually if, haven't done a ranking myself in a long if time. If I was going to go off the top of my head right now, mm -hmm. I would say... Okay, Mas Master of Puppets, Black Album, Justice, Ride the Lightning, Hardwired, Load, Kill 'em All, um, Death Magnetic. And then I would say reload. And then San Anger is my lowest, but I still like it. Yeah. And then, then like, you know, I, I wouldn't count like as a studio record, the, you know, Garage Inc. or like SM, like that kind of stuff. But as far as like actual studio releases, I would say those. I really liked Hardwired. I love Hardwired. And what I love about it is that it took that 
kind of retro back to our roots, back to basics identity mission statement that was death magnetic. Yeah. And added vocal harmonies and better production and less insane mastering. And yeah, you know, it's not as and dry that like, Rick Rubin, like dry production style, I think works. doesn't great. work for Metallica. Yeah. It works great for Slayer. Slayer is right. fast and crazy. And, um, it sounds good there. It sounds great on the first four Danzig albums. It sounds great on the cult electric, you know, it sounds like ACDC, but, uh, but that dryness, yeah, it didn't work for Metallica, but I I love that they were, I feel like, you know, every band likes to say our new album is like all the strengths of our old albums all combined into this one. I feel like that's what hardwired actually accomplished. Yeah. Like if I was to pick a track off of hardwired to, to show off those strengths, I would say, dream no more you have these verses that sound very much like something that could have been on low to reload the kind of like loose kind of bluesy rock kind of thing going on Mm -hmm. and then chorus wise it's like this sounds like a riff that could be in the thing that should not be and it's about cthulhu i was gonna say Um, and yeah we get the love crack in there but it's just like it's so the way it like does that little bit of a slowdown and just like it's just crushing and if you would have told anybody that they would write something that good again after hearing St. Anger, they'd be like, no, no, this band's lost it. But it really goes back. And I think that a part of it is them like watching the videos of them making that record. They were excited. They mm-hmm. had a little bit of that fire back. Um, and I, I'm spacing on the producer on that one i think it was greg fiddleman right who was okay yeah assisted Um, on the rick rubin one but more more in line with saying like no you should do this do this do that again because i think also with pre-sane anger they got the the kind of like the ego things built so much that you know you look at, at bob rock in uh year and a half in the life of metallica versus bob rock in some some kind of monster Yeah. And it's like, they're two different people. He looks so defeated by that point. He's just like, yeah, whatever, man. Because I, I don't think that they listen to him anymore. Um, everyone had their kind of ideas because the egos got so big. And San Anger was them trying to kill those ego, egos. So I think they were willing to listen again. And I think that with Hardwired, they had somebody who knew like, hey, this is what Metallica should be doing. And a good producer can get the best material out of you and not just be like, yes, okay, you're going to, you're going to sound like this. And that's, that's what I think they did there. I love now that we're dead. I love murder one. Um, there's a lot of different shades. I like, it has that load reload adventurousness of going on a journey and going to different places emotionally and yeah. different depths while still having that, like, you know, kick ass, uh, fist in the air early metallica vibe i will say when i think about death magnetic all nightmare long is just like an unstoppable song like yeah. there's some songs in there that are just so amazing and so great live yeah um, that my, my thing with death magnetic is there's a lot of i would say a lot of it that reminds me of justice where it seems mm-hmm. like there is a good chunk of riff soup riff salad whatever yes, you want to call a lot it of riff soup a, lot... And a lot of reminiscent riff soup where yeah where it's going on reminds where... you of justice like you're hearing justice riffs <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um but like the day that never comes i like that song 
but there's it goes to a certain point and you're like this could have been condensed yeah um but again it's like it still does the thing it needs to do mm-hmm. i bought and it sometimes when it came it's out fun and to get, to get in it. that marathon right as a listener and to just sit there and let it take oh, yeah. away this like those athletic workout songs but um yeah i think they're at their best when they when they balance that out with some of that soul and some of that vibe from the nineties that started with the black yeah, album that was taken to its furthest extent. That's what's load. cool about Metallica though, is they've done so many different things that there's, that's there's what makes them the Beatles bringing us full circle. Like you, you said, can, you can listen and whatever you're, you're dealing with that day. There's, there's a Metallica record for you to, you know, like, okay, this one fits my mood today. Yeah. That's like the Beatles thing. That's like the Zeppelin thing. Pink Floyd, like these bands who had yep. a signature sound, but also explored a lot across a catalog. I think for better or worse, you know, it's interesting when you look at what are there, 10 Metallica records? Nine? Um, when you look at that and then you look at like Megadeth, where there's 15, 16 Megadeth albums. Right. You know, in, in, in less time, or how many Slayer records there are, like yeah, you know, and- there are there are very few Metallica records given that they've been a band for 40 years. I mean, that's like, you know, but having said that, there have been so many things like Garage Inc., like SM, like Binge and Purge, like these yeah. marathon two, three year long tours. Uh, and, know, and part of that, so like- much else happening that they're always productive. They're always 3D movie festival. You know, there's always something happening. And that goes back to us, like them, they're just doing what they want to do where you have some of these other bands where they're, they're successful, but they have to keep the machine rolling because yeah, they're not Metallica rich. Yeah. And when you're, you're at that level where you like, I don't need to do anything so we can, we can take six years to write a record if we need to, because we can put everything we have into it where there's, there's nobody expecting a follow-up every two years, like most bands have to do. Yeah. And also the fact that they don't need to be, they don't have to stick to whatever sound because they're not worried about commercial success or failure. Whereas, you know, bands like, like I've never really been a big Megadeth fan, but I love Slayer, but you know, if Slayer was to say, all right, we're getting back together and we're going to put out a new record, you know what it's going to sound like. Right. And that's fine. It's Slayer. You're going to love it. It's yeah. going to be good. Um, but the same kind of goes for Megadeth. The, t- the bit where they, they strayed a little bit, um, I can't remember the name of the record, but it was wasn't received well. Yeah, yeah, and it's like I I have probably like four or five Megadeth songs that I really like, and I pretty much like every Metallica song. Yeah, same. That's true. That's a good point. I think I like every Metallica song, um, and I'm not. Yeah, my ranking it it changes all the time, and thinking about it, listening to yours, yeah, for me it goes. Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, uh, which are very close to one another all the time. Um, And then I suppose Justice, Black Album, Hardwired, Load, Reload, Saint Anger. Where's Kill Em All in there? I'd put Kill Em All between load and reload yeah it's like it changes all the time for me because there's been times where i've had justice really low um and load really high and it all yeah it's always you know i guess the things that never change 
is that Ride the Lightning and Master Puppets are always towards the top and Santa. Yeah, I think for me, Master Master always keeps that top spot and it has since they put out the like the deluxe reissue that, that has that them like demoing so stuff. Yeah. When you can hear them playing Master Puppets, like because you don't associate like how old they were when you hear the record because it's just so good. But when you hear them demoing Master of Puppets and you can hear like they don't have the solo stuff written and you hear James just kind of noodling away and you're like, these were kids. These yeah. guys were 22, yeah. 23 years old writing one of the greatest records of all time. Most people Insane. don't have that sort of like songwriting awareness until they're much older and they were just nailing it. And I know how much like Cliff played a part in that with the the songwriting, kind of like the arrangement back in the day with it being more like classical influenced. Um, when I moved out to the Bay area, I, I got a chance to, for like the two years we lived there, I got to do go to Cliff Burton day twice. Um, one was the, the last year that Roy Burton did it before he passed away. Mm. And then the last time they did it kind of before the pandemic. Um, and like, I got to talk to Connie for a bit there, his, uh, Cliff's sister. Mm hmm. And it's just like her talking about being young, like how how musical Cliff was. Like he wasn't just a bass player. Like he played like fingerstyle guitar, classical, piano. I think, yeah, he, a, a lot. He was such a big part of that early shaping of Metallica. When I had Michael Alago on the podcast, he was talking about how the first time the Metallica guys came to visit him at Electra. Cliff asked him for some Simon and Garfunkel records. Yeah. It's like, it's, you got to think it, that's like at the height of Kings of thrash, you know, young, right. Thrash just, attack. uh, like he liked music. He wasn't just, he was not one dimensional. And even you look at that stuff back then, like Cliff was wearing bell bottoms. Like he was, he wasn't just this like thrash guy with like a studded belt and spikes and all this shit. Like he, that's that's what opened them up because I think that like yes he they they brought like you said they brought a bunch of songs from their old bands in for Kill 'Em All, but he opened them up with Ride the Lightning, and then I think them finally they I think they fully mesh with each other on Master. I think we can we can rightfully credit Cliff with a lot of the melody, the musicality, um, and a lot of vibe and i think that you know those guys still each of them have their own unique relationship with cliff yeah and I, and I think those guys still really carry on in his spirit you know and, right uh, and i think a lot of their attitude about the way they challenge their audience and the way that they won't do, make the same record twice and the way that they stick to their guns and dig in their heels even if the court of public opinion seems against them i think that's all i can the yeah, spirit they, of Cliff Burton, you know? Yeah, and they, they've always, they, Cliff was punk rock. Like he, they, and he brought that to Metallica, you know, the Misfits stuff, Danzig stuff. Like, you know, without Metallica, I don't think that Danzig or Misfits would have ever gotten very big, like outside of like the punk circles, because they brought them. People were like, oh, who's that? The first time I heard about the Misfits was seeing pictures of Metallica wearing Misfits shirts and going, who is this? Um, and they, even when they, when they bring bands on tour, they 
they don't need somebody to sell tickets. They just, oh, we like this band. Um, like I realized yesterday when I was watching some kind of monsters at a point where James is wearing a down shirt and when the first time I saw them, the only time I've seen them was with down. I was like, oh yeah, because they like down. They brought them out. Yeah. Uh, I remember like I talked about how I liked CKY at some point back in the day. They just asked CKY to play some shows because they're like, hey, we like you guys. The band Bokasa had never left their home country when Lars discovered them and they ended up taking them on like, you know, all around the world. Yeah, from Crazy. small bands to big bands. And even when, you know, when they take somebody, you know, Avenged Sevenfold has several platinum records. They're a, a huge band of their own right. Uh, Metallica doesn't need to take Avenged Sevenfold on tour. No, they just they do don't because they want to. And even a band that's that big, Avenged Sevenfold, you're still going to be playing in front of a bunch of people who have never heard who you are. And, Absolutely. And they, they might not like you they because at this point you have so many like older people stuck in their ways they're going to go see metallica and they're like who's this open who's this opening band not yeah. realizing they they're multi-platinum yeah whatever they're just or like, and, or like who are these kids not realizing they're like pushing 40 right <laughs> you know yeah um <laughs> but yeah that's what's cool like i wish that i do wish they were able to still do that orion fest because once that when that yeah. happens like that's really cool because they're just showcasing all of these small bands um, and it was so eclectic too. I mean, you know, to have a Metallica curated festival that has like Arctic monkeys at it. Yeah. You know, it's pretty crazy. Wish I could have gone to that. Like, uh, I, I would love for that to come back at some point, but I also understand the costs and everything that go the undertaking into throwing... and it was a, a money loser. I mean, they say like every festival loses, even Coachella lost money for a long time before it ever right. made money. And that was the biggest festival in the world. But I think, um, especially for Metallica to give it the, prestige the feel the vibe the uh window dressing you know to treat the bands as well as they did you know i don't think that they would do it any other way and there's no way for that not to cost a gazillion dollars and lose a gazillion dollars right which is a bummer yeah i wish i'd gotten to go to the first one i did get to go to the second one which was incredible and you know yeah it's they did that middle of the day second stage kill them all start to finish the prize set yeah, and literally and people just run it's like two in the afternoon people just running to get up front and uh, myself included and um it was so so killer man so so killer one of those many times i was on tour like even this um they they announced the 40th anniversary shows at the chase center and it's like that's that's like a five-hour drive for me and i'm like oh crap i gotta go and sure enough like the day, the two days it is, I'm like, oh, we have shows. No. What? Can't where go. are you? For some reason, I thought you were still East Coast, Midwest. Uh, I'm, I'm up in Humboldt County. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Moved, moved out to the Bay Area uh, a few years ago to be with my now wife. Um, just got married in May. And then, Congrats. um, actually, I'm getting her, we're, we're going on our honeymoon this weekend. And the first thing we're doing is getting tattooed and, I am getting her name, which is, I know, a taboo kind of thing to do, but her name is Moya, starts with an M, ends with an A, so it's going to be in the Metallica font. Nice. Nice. Because um, I just have to. And you can um, always say it's Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we lived in the Bay Area, and it was kind of cool, like, just being where all this stuff happened, but it's also, you know, it's a hellhole. There's too many people. It's too expensive. 
we were renting a bedroom in somebody else's apartment for like $1,500 a month. Um, so we got out of there, moved up north, and things have been much better. Um, got my Metallica poster over there oh, yeah. that I found at a thrift store, and I was like, I got to buy that. Amazing. Uh, That's an amazing thrift store find, and it's also got that St. Anger, Anger era logo. Yep. yep, I think that was right after that came out. Um, it's funny, there's a, there's a Mexican restaurant down the street that the owner is... Rob, I believe it's Rob Trujillo's wife's cousin owns the place. And I'm just like, maybe he'll be there someday. <laughs> but <laughs> maybe he will. <laughs> hey. Amazing. Um, well, dude, I, you know, like I said, when we started some of these conversations, you feel like you just barely scratched the surface, even after you go forever. I would love to have you back on. Oh, yeah. I, I would love your, it. Your fandom and your level of, of fandom. And it's always, I mean, and I think it's great you know, you're in a well-established popular band and I think it's killer and a testament to Metallica's legacy and continued impact that so many people who are so well-established as musicians in their own right come on this podcast to talk about how much they love Metallica. Yeah. And it's like, you know, there, there are many guitar players that have influenced me, but without Metallica and especially James Hetfield, I don't play guitar. I never picked it up. I never had the determination because like you're just watching old interviews, watching when I was younger, having year and a half in the life of Metallica, watching them play and want to be the best that they possibly could be. Mm -hmm. It's inspiring. And it made me want to be always be better at my instrument, always be better at writing songs. And so it's like I, everything I've done, like in some way, shape or form, I owe it to, Metallica laying the groundwork for what I want to do. 